This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. 19 has now passed 500,000. More than half a million Americans lost to the pandemic. That's more Americans who have died in one year in this pandemic than in World War One, World War Two, and the Vietnam War combined. Johnson & Johnson now working overtime at its Memphis storage facility to get its single-shot vaccine out as soon as possible. This as that concerning new variant spreads through New York City. Here in Illinois, the state set a single-day vaccine record as Governor J.B. Pritzker expanded eligibility for Phase 1B. Plus, Chicago plans to turn the United Center into a mass testing site as soon as next month. Joining us now to discuss those stories and more is Dr. Mia Teramina, infectious disease specialist with the DuPage Medical Group. Hi, Dr. Teramina. Hi, Sasha Ann. She's also here to answer your questions about COVID-19 as she does every Friday. Have a question about the virus or vaccines or the variants? Give us a call now. We're at 866-915-WBEZ. Again, that's 866-915-WBEZ. Doctor, first, I'd love to get your reaction to the fact that the country's COVID-19 death toll surpassed 500,000 this week. It, it's truly um, a, a disheartening milestone that I hoped uh, we would never see, um, but that number is going to continue to grow. And I know there's been um, kind of controversy over what's recorded as a COVID death and, and what isn't. And the reality is, is that the presence of this virus has not only uh, led to uh, morbidity and mortality from the virus itself, but uh, individuals with comorbidities are having those issues um, be a, a significant threat if they become co-infected with COVID. It's causing heart attacks. It's causing strokes. We're seeing it every day. Um, so it, it's more than I ever uh, imagined and feared, uh, but it's not, it's not done yet, this grim milestone. What about death rates here in Chicago and Illinois in, in cases? Are we seeing a downward trend? We are. Uh, there are still hospitalizations. There are still patients that are very sick, but many of the hospitals that I work at currently are seeing the lowest numbers of COVID admissions um, in the last four or five months, which is a really encouraging downward trend. But by all means, we are still seeing intensive care patients. We're still seeing patients pass away from the uh, manifestations of this virus as it wreaks havoc on their bodies over the course of many weeks. It's not necessarily you become admitted and do poorly and pass away. This is something where uh, patients sometimes have a very rocky course and ultimately uh, succumb to uh, all of the, the things that can happen with a severe case of COVID. Our therapeutics are, are working in our favor. We do have options. We have evidence-based medicine that is working both on an inpatient and outpatient side to dramatically decrease these severe cases. And that has been very helpful in leading towards a death rate that is coming down. Our most vulnerable remain the most at risk for, for death. That includes our, our most elderly patients, and we are still trying to get these individuals vaccinated as rapidly as possible. Well, yesterday, uh, the president marked 50 million doses administered since he took office. Uh, so he's halfway through his goal of administering 100 million doses in his first 100 days. You think he's going to be able to achieve this? 
I do, and 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 more. Um, I think that uh, all signs are pointing to a pace that should continue to uh, exponentially increase in the weeks and months to come. Uh, we got some incredible uh, news about Johnson and Johnson's vaccine. Uh, I think that that's going to be a very valuable tool in our arsenal. And while there may only be uh, several million doses available to go in the next uh, couple of weeks, in the next couple of months, we could see a hundred million doses uh, that Johnson and Johnson is able to manufacture it. All, and that's when we really are going to start turning this corner. Well, here in Illinois, doctor, uh, the governor expanded eligibility for phase 1B, and now it includes people under 65 with underlying health conditions. What does this mean exactly? What, what kind of health conditions actually apply? You know, this is there's there's some gray areas here, and there's a lot of frustration on the part of individuals that are very uh, severely ill and um, have uh, significant medical comorbidities, but are under the age of 65. This expansion, sort of the 1B plus or 1B extended group, uh, can include people with active cancers, uh, those who are severely immunocompromised and non-immunocompromising immunosuppressive drugs, end-stage renal disease, diabetics, individuals in those categories, um, uh, those with COPD severe lung issues. Um, but there are some gray areas where patients may be a severe asthmatic and, and they may also qualify or uh, patients may have uh, HIV virus and, and they may qualify uh, based on certain criteria. The availability of these vaccines, however, is is scant. Um, there is a lot of, uh, of question as to if all or some commercial pharmacies are going to be able to uh, extend to Category 1B. Uh, there are certainly areas that are more remote from the the city and collar counties where uh, vaccine is more accessible to this group. But Cook, the city of Chicago, DuPage, Lake Counties, uh, there just isn't enough vaccine, unfortunately, to get down to these individuals at this moment. This is going to be a week-to-week assessment to see when and if we can open the aperture and, and get these patients in. They are medically vulnerable. I want them to get vaccinated. And denying them vaccine based on a supply issue has been very frustrating on everyone's parts. Well, to your point, Dr. Chicago and Cook County have opted not to join uh, the state in expanding phase 1B. Uh, Officials say that they just do not have enough vaccine doses. We did speak earlier this week with Dr. Allison Arwoody of the Chicago Department of Public Health, and I want to play a little bit of what she had to say about that. We've only gotten about 31% of the vaccine that we need to cover the people who are already eligible. The more than 360,000 Chicagoans who are over 65 and those frontline high-risk essential workers. So we remain focused for right now on the people over 65 um, and those groups we're already working on. Sound familiar, Dr. Taramina? It, it, you know, it does. It sounds like a broken record over here. That's and it's 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 hard. It breaks my heart. It feels really good when we have vaccine and we're able to say yes, we have the ability to extend you a ticket or an invite to schedule your vaccine today. It feels like you're you're part of that momentum leading toward the end of this pandemic. And yet, more often than not, I'm saying, please, a little bit longer. We're almost there. We should have more vaccine in the weeks to come. And we're trying to reassure these patients that are scrambling and looking for vaccine anywhere that they can potentially get it, um, that, that there is more coming. All signs are pointing in that direction. Let's jump to the phones now. Dr. Uh, Kirk's waiting. He's calling from Oak Park, and he's got a question about phase 1C. Hi, Kirk. Hi, how are you? Doing well. What's your question? Uh, Yeah, so I'm 
49 and had a heart attack when I was 43. Uh, and I'm just curious. I keep hearing different dates for Phase 1C. I think you might have answered it just with the uh, um, uh, availability of vaccine that you don't know when that's going to be yet. So I might alter my question a little bit. I'm also uh, in the home improvement industry, and I go into about three homes a day but I don't see that that falls under essential workers. Um, is there any way I could get a vaccine in 1B with that? So a, this whole Category 1B expanded in Category 1C, people are sort of using those terms interchangeably. To be clear, 1B expanded are those under age 65 with medical comorbidities. 1C moves into additional frontline workers where we get into our restaurant workers and, and other folks that are working with the community on a day-to-day -day basis. So that is sort of where 1C is. The projection for 1C that has been kind of whispered out of Cook County and Chicago is end of March. I, I, that might be a little optimistic. Um, I'm hoping not. I'm hoping by all means that we're able to get down to 1C, but that means getting a substantial uh, portion of the 360,000 plus individuals in 1B vaccinated. So the short answer to your question is yes, you know, with your cardiac history, being someone under the age of 65 with significant cardiac issues, you can qualify with this expanded 1B, but it's going to be challenging to find where you can get the vaccine vaccine. Um, you may be able to find it at some commercial pharmacies, and certainly you may be able to look downstate. Uh, but in the weeks to come, it might be more accessible to you. You're listening to Reset. We are talking with Dr. Taramina, infectious disease specialist from the DuPage Medical Group. And she's answering the latest COVID-19 uh, updates and answering our questions. She's also here to chat with you. Give us a call. Our phone lines are open at 866-915-WBEZ. Again, 866-915-WBEZ. Let's hear now from Patricia in Berwyn. Hi, Patricia. What's your question? Uh, yeah, I'm a COVID survivor. I had it back in October. And I understand that there is a, one vaccine that is better suited for somebody who has survived COVID and still has antibodies. Um, what is the doctor's opinion on that? If that's true, which which vaccine is that? So, uh, Patricia, that's a great question. I do get this question. And where this is coming from is the fact that um, the Moderna vaccine does have more messenger RNA in it than the Pfizer vaccine. And the fact that you have already had COVID, uh, all signs are pointing toward the fact that even a single dose of messenger RNA vaccine uh, acts as a booster to the natural infection you've had. And we may see guidelines change to the extent that someone that has had COVID might only need one dose of vaccine. At present, two doses are still recommended. The Pfizer vaccine having less messenger RNA in it, but still the same efficacy is tending toward giving people less of a punch if they've already had COVID. Uh, they're both safe. They're both effective. You should get whichever vaccine is first available to you. Uh, but that, that word on the street is coming from the fact that those who get Moderna vaccine after having COVID tend towards more severe side effects, but that's not 100% at all. Sticking with vaccines, Dr. Johnson & Johnson's one-shot vaccine could make its global debut as soon as next week. What does the latest data tell us about the J&J &J vaccine and, and how it compares to Pfizer and Moderna's? 
This is going to be a great vaccine. First of all, it's it's one shot only. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is doing some additional studies on boosting and a second dose. But at, at present, it's going to uh, receive authorization as a single dose vaccine. It doesn't require the extreme storage temperatures. So this is the vaccine that's going to be able to be brought into our disadvantaged communities, people that don't have transportation, people that don't have access to the internet to schedule things. This is going to be a vaccine that becomes an incredible tool for mass vaccination sites in our communities. It's a great tool for individuals under age 60. Not that it necessarily won't be utilized in individuals over age 60, but because it is slightly less efficacious than our messenger RNA vaccines, those would probably be preferred for our older patients and those who have more significant medical issues. It's going to be published as having 66% efficacy. But what is missing from that statement is the fact that it is nearly 100% effective in preventing severe outcomes from coronavirus and hospitalizations, which is outstanding. And we also need to bear in mind the fact that a significant amount of research that went on with the messenger RNA vaccines did during a time when we had less circulating variants. It is certainly possible these messenger RNA vaccines uh, acting against the variants may have had an efficacy published at less than that 95%. So in reality, this is not a bad option. It's not a lesser option for the vast majority of adults in the United States. And I look forward to being able to use it. Yeah. And the trials... They went well, right? There were no. They went very. They went very well. There's virtually no severe cases of COVID. Those who became infected with COVID, even with variant strains, after having Johnson and Johnson vaccine, had mild illness, and that's what we need to get this down to: is a common cold. You know, we need to be able to dumb this virus down to the to the uh, way that we can easily overcome this and and get back to our day to day. Yeah. Let's hear now from Mark in Wilmette. Hey, Mark, what's your question for the doctor? Hi, thanks for taking this. Um, I'm a dentist. I'm one day. I was fortunate enough to get the Moderna vaccine. And uh, just before my second one, one of my patients, a physician, suggested, well, why don't you take some Tylenol ahead of time just to make the after effects a little easier? Seemed like a good idea. I did that. And as the nurse was literally giving me the vaccine, she said, now don't take any Tylenol or Advil. It may mitigate the effects. So what's the research? What do you think about this? So the word on the street on our end of things is the preference is not to take uh, Tylenol or ibuprofen in anticipation of potential side effects. I don't want people feeling uncomfortable uh, after getting vaccines. So to the extent that you may have a fever or body aches or chills that are not something tolerable to you, you can certainly take Tylenol or ibuprofen after the vaccine if needed. But to the extent that you're able to kind of rock and roll through even those side effects without taking Tylenol and ibuprofen, let the vaccine do its thing. Now, I don't want you to worry that taking Tylenol prior to the vaccine has led to you not having an appropriate response. We are seeing very, very uh, robust responses to these vaccines with, you know, uh, a significant amount of neutralizing antibodies uh, formed. So it's unlikely that it's a major issue at all that you did take some Tylenol. But for those who are anticipating <clears throat> vaccines moving forward, excuse me, um, please, uh, no need to take any Tylenol or ibuprofen beforehand. Let's hear now from Kathleen. She's calling from Irving Park. Hi, Kathleen. What's your question? Hi, thank, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm 48 years old. I have lupus, and I'm a massage therapist. Um, under the CDC guidelines, I'm considered a medical worker, uh, but Cook County doesn't uh, count me as that. And 
in any other county as a massage therapist and as a person with lupus, I would be able to get the vaccine under the 1B extension. Can't I just, can I just go to another county? That's a great question. Uh, there are certain county sites that are allowing individuals to come from other counties, and there are certain county sites that are not. Um, you know, so, and it all depends on supply. It all depends on what's available. You can go to commercial pharmacies in other counties. So you can absolutely uh, look at Walgreens and Mariano's and, and Jewel Osco and see if there are vaccines available to you. Massage therapy, I am in agreement, uh, does count as a category 1A by most definitions. So you can click on healthcare worker, and that might uh, expedite your ability to access appointment slots. Um, but I would encourage you to look around. Um, there's a Facebook site that has been, you know, almost 30,000 participants at this point, Chicago Vaccine Hunters. We've talked about this before, but go ahead and take a look. There are literally by the minute uh, updates with locations that are accepting individuals with your criteria, and you should be able to schedule an appointment hopefully very soon. Uh, doctor, this week in Chicago, the lakefront and playgrounds and indoor pools, they've all started to reopen. And as things continue to reopen and, and people might be spending more time in these shared spaces, outdoors, even indoors, tell us some of the important things you want us to keep in mind. And one of the reasons I'm asking this, Doctor, is because the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported this week that a Chicago gym was the site of an outbreak last summer. Yeah. You know, I Fitness, indoor fitness and small studio fitness has been something that was on my radar as being a higher risk from the get-go. And uh, to the extent that some uh, gyms have been able to successfully reopen with uh, mitigation strategies, uh, hopefully mask wearing and also distancing as able, uh, they've been able to do so relatively successfully. We still have lots of people working out in groups indoors unmasked, and that's just inherently going to be a riskier activity. I'm in full support of the lakefront opening up. Um, I would not want people convening in large groups, even outdoors, especially if you're with groups that are much larger than your own household. But to the extent that you can have a get-together uh, where people are able to socially distance and wear masks if they're not able to socially distance, I'm, I think it's going to be welcome to getting back outside, moving these indoor gatherings outside, and, and being able to enjoy some of that stuff. Um, I'm a swimmer myself, okay. um, so I, don't, I have to disclose that. I don't want to be too biased, but I have viewed swimming pools as being very low risk from the onset as well. Um, the nature of swimming is just such that um, it's, it's not a high risk activity. And the fact that you are just literally swimming in chlorine uh, seems to be a very, very low risk activity. So I'm uh, in support of pools being opened as well. Well, Megan in, in Forest Park asks us why the uh, Illinois Health Department and CDC have different guidelines on indoor maskless gym workouts. Do you want to address that? Uh, I wish I could address that. I wish everyone's <laughs> guidelines can align. I want it down from the CDC to the state health department to the county health departments all being on the same page. And that just hasn't uh, always been the way it is. Mm. I think that we have to have some room to use our best judgment. And, and the, the reality is, is that indoor unmasked activities, especially fitness, where you're breathing hard. Um, and, you know, I, I think that even if masks aren't allowed, wearing a mask would still be my choice if, if I was doing an indoor fitness activity. So um, I think that there needs to be a little bit of judgment and discretion, even if uh, the guidelines are saying one way or the other. Uh, stay safe, be outdoors when you can during fitness activities, and when indoors, keep your distance, wear a mask when you cannot. And if it's a studio-type environment, I would err on the side of keeping that mask for a while longer. 
This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we are in the middle of our weekly call-in with Dr. Mia Teramina, infectious disease specialist with the DuPage Medical Group. She joins us every Friday from about 11.20 to noonish to answer your COVID-19 questions. Now, if you have a question, you can call us right now. We're at 866-915-WBEZ. That's 866-915-WBEZ. Dr. Teramina, we're also seeing some uh, vaccines that are being tested to address concerns around COVID-19 variants. What is the latest there? So a couple good things that we have uh, learned in the last week or so about this is that um, both Pfizer and Moderna are ramping up on manufacturing vaccines that will address these variants. And it is likely and predicted that we will be using these as a booster. So you should not wait around to get this vaccine as though you want to get the vaccine that quote unquote covers everything. That's not the way this is meant to work. Um, This is going to act as a booster at at present to the existing vaccines uh, if and when it's necessary to administer it. The other good part is it will not have to go through the um, prolonged trials and waiting period, even though these trials were very, very much uh, accelerated. Um, We don't need to have 60 days of data. So when it's time and when we need to use these, as long as they are proven to be safe and effective, uh, we will go ahead and be able to give booster dosing. I would estimate this would happen no sooner than six to 12 months from now, but it's going to take a while to see how all that pans out. It's just very encouraging uh, to know that that our our drug companies are on this mm-hmm. and that you know they're already in testing stages of these vaccines. Well, until now most new variants were found, you know, in faraway places like South Africa, Brazil, the UK, right? Um, but now, doctor, there's a new variant that was uh, discovered in New York City. Can you tell us more about this? Correct. The the variants, there's a variant in California as well. The variant in California and the variant in New York City, these are resembling quite a bit some of the other variants we've seen. They're not dramatically different. So it's not like we're going to necessarily have to get a new vaccine every other month. Uh, it's anticipated that creating a vaccine to address the most likely variations uh, that are going to be circulating in the community will be one that is protective against what we're seeing in New York, what we're seeing in California, what we're seeing uh, in in the UK. Variants are by all a projection are going to become dominant strains soon, probably in the next month or so, mm-hmm. meaning that we're going to have so many people vaccinated and so much protection against what we call the wild type virus or the original coronavirus strains that it's only going to give opportunity for these variations to take hold in our communities. And we'll have to keep a close eye on these trends. Let's hear now from a caller. Mike is joining us from Roseland. Hi, Mike. Go ahead with your question. Hi. Hi, uh, Dr. Teramina. Hi, Sasha. Hi. I have been notified that uh, I'm eligible to get a first shot, and I have been invited to make an appointment to get the first shot. And uh, going through the process to make an appointment through my uh, doctor portal, my patient portal thing, uh, I start going through the various areas where a clinic is available to me. And the only one that's available that's feasible for me tells me they have no times available each day that I've tried to uh, make an appointment. And I'm assuming it's because they don't have the vaccine yet right now. And I can't make an appointment as a result. And I'm just wondering how long it's going to be before the vaccine starts showing up so I can make an appointment. 
Oh, the million dollar question. You know, I, I would encourage you, I know it's frustrating to keep checking back, um, you know, several times a day sometimes because it can be a matter of, of when and if supplies are released. If there's any type of uh, patient uh, assistance phone line or hotline that you can call to maybe get a little more information about that. There are also some resources around where you may want to uh, reach out and see if there's transportation available to some of the areas that are a little farther away that might have vaccine available to you. There might be some uh, free and reduced cost rideshare options um, uh, in order to transport you to get to your vaccines. Uh, but I can only hope that sites that have multiple locations listed and maybe only vaccine available at a site or two, as supplies ramp up, we will be able to populate these sites. You know, just as we heard over the break, you know, the capacity to vaccinate 6,000 people a day at the United Center is outstanding. Get us the doses. We can do it. I think the infrastructure is largely in place in many, many facilities. Uh, we can vaccinate, you know, thousands of people a day in a lot of these sites. We just need the vaccine. Thanks for your question, Mike. On now to Rini in Glenview. Hi, Rini. Hi. Um, I actually have a couple different questions. Um, one is about the immunosuppressed population and the level of immunity for the immunosuppressed population after they receive the vaccine. My second question is about people who have been vaccinated and whether they can still be carriers despite having been vaccinated. Uh, both outstanding questions, Rini. Um, what we do know is that our immunosuppressed population is is the exact folks that could be quite vulnerable to severe outcomes from coronavirus. So we definitely want those on immunosuppressives and, and uh, other medications that damper immunity to receive vaccine. Uh, there doesn't appear to be any uh, overt harm in getting vaccinated. However, you're absolutely correct. We might not have the most uh, protective antibodies that develop in someone who's not able to readily develop antibodies because of their immunosuppression. There are tests that we can do to check for antibodies uh, several weeks after the second dose of vaccine to verify that they're present. And over time, we will learn more about the titers or levels of antibodies that we need to have in order to have that protective effect. So at present, the guidance is to go ahead and get vaccinated, and we will uh, be able to determine over time if boosters are needed uh, in this population. And with regards to the second question, that's information that we're still learning about. Right now, we don't think of people that are fully vaccinated as being individuals that can really drive infection, that if you're fully vaccinated, even if you can carry active virus, it should be at relatively low numbers, and hopefully you would not be a super spreader. But we cannot say that that's impossible. We do not know enough about these vaccines to know if they stop transmission. That's why we have to continue with our mask wearing and social distancing, especially when and if we begin to hear about surges in numbers of resistant uh, strains of the virus in our communities, because that's when we really have concern that what I'm carrying as a vaccinated individual might be more resistant and more transmissible than a routine run-of-the-mill coronavirus strain. So we have to continue to be mindful of that possibility. You're listening to Reset. We're talking with Dr. Teramina, infectious disease specialist from the DuPage Medical Group, about the latest COVID-19 updates in our region. She's also here answering your questions. Uh, Dr. CPS is planning on bringing more students back to in-person learning. Um, kindergarten through fifth graders are expected to go back on Monday, middle schoolers the week after. How should parents be preparing? 
You know, parents should be uh, very much looking forward to an opportunity to get these kids back in the classroom and to continue to see if their teachers uh, need anything from them if, to the extent that more supplies might be necessary. Uh, cleaning supplies and whatnot seem to be more readily available now. Um, make sure your kids go with a more than one mask. It seems like these little kids sitting throughout the day tend to gather moisture on their mask. Maybe they're licking their lips or doing something along those lines. So during a break, they may want to change their mask out to a dry mask midway through the day. Um, I would also make sure that whatever screening process your school has, be it uh, temperature checks or saliva screening or anything that might be implemented in the schools, that we go ahead and adhere to that. That's going to only lead to enhanced safety in our, uh, our school buildings. And I think uh, all signs are pointing towards these kids being in person are not major super spreader sites. And, and hopefully we can safely educate our kids and get them back in the classroom. Well, doctor, I'm so glad you mentioned masks because you know what I'm going to ask you. It's our weekly question, the refresher on, on what yeah. kind of masks to wear and, and how to wear them properly. All right. So at present, uh, really wearing one mask that is multi-layered and is fitting, meaning that it's over your nose, under your chin, and there's no large gaps on the sides. If it is a larger fitting mask, you can tie the sides, you can twist the sides in order to get a snugger fit. Um, you know, we actually use a, a marker as if you're breathing in and out and the mask actually kind of blows in and out with that, that indicates that there's a pretty decent seal there, which is good, even with a simple mask. If you choose to wear more than one mask and as variants take hold that might become a more widespread recommendation the recommendation would be to not double up cloth masks not double up simple surgical masks or paper masks but to wear that disposable mask underneath a cloth mask to get the most effective seal and and the best layer of protection if you're using an n95 or a kn95 uh, make sure that it's properly fitting and that you can feel the seal there uh, it is not necessary to wear a second mask over an n95 or a kn95 unless you're going to be in an environment where you want to protect the mask by wearing a surgical mask on the outside of it uh, to protect against splatter or something along those lines. Let's hear from Dan in Wheaton. Hi, Dan. What's your question? Hi. Well, um, my question is about my granddaughters. I just had uh, my, my one of my daughters just had her first baby and on Friday, and I'm going to help her take care of her. And so I want to know what kind of precautions I should take I have another one, too, but that, that, that's first. Well, congrats on the new grandchild, Dan. Doctor, Absolutely. Yeah. So, Dan, uh, to the extent that, that um, you may have some criteria for getting vaccinated, please uh, seek out any opportunity available to you. Um, there are some uh, um, uh, recommendations for individuals that are in primary caregiver roles. If this is going to be something that you're doing nine to five, five days a week to help out your daughter, uh, by all means, see if your doctor might be able to provide you with some sort of documentation as to you working with a, an at-risk vulnerable infant on the basis of uh, them just being Born. Otherwise, I do encourage mask wearing, even if you are uh, able to get vaccine, um, especially if you're going to be holding the baby and interacting closely with the baby. Good hand washing, of course, frequent hand washing uh, as well. But um, yeah, uh, other than that, enjoy your grandchild. Let's hear now from Ariel in Woodlawn. Hi, Ariel. What's your question for the doctor? Hi, um, I'm a musician, and I'm just wondering if there are some more recent guidelines around music making indoors, specifically singing, like with a mask or without a mask, if the doctor can talk about that. 
Thanks, Ariel. Sure, Ariel. You know, we, we know that we had situations of super spreader events involving choirs uh, because of the fact that we are projecting uh, our voices in order to sing, in order to uh, make music. Um, uh, mask wearing, of course, would be preferred. Obviously, that's going to alter uh, the, the singing in general uh, because the, the mask will be muffling to some extent. Um, but social distancing and mask wearing for indoor singing would still be my preference and, and not gathering and, and being in large groups where you are uh, hunkered together like a, a choral ensemble typically would be. Um, as this weather improves and we're able to get outside, I think there is room to potentially have singing outdoors without masks um, if, if patients are able to maintain a, a reasonable social distance moving forward. Dr. Before we let you go, real briefly, you know, these case numbers, as you mentioned, and, and deaths are, are slowing in the country and here in our state and city. People are getting vaccinated. Is it too early for us to start imagining, uh, imagining, imagining uh, an end to the pandemic? I think there will be an end to the pandemic. You know, the unfortunate reality is that even from day Good. one, the life expectancy of a pandemic is, you know, in that in that one to two year ballpark. So, you know, we're, we're beyond the year. I think it's very reasonable that we are going to be doing everything we're doing well into the end of this year. And I think to some extent, mask wearing is going to become part of our uh, normal uh, flu season and viral season uh, occurrence. And we need to adapt to these mitigation strategies that work. We have a very populated earth and we travel and there are viruses. And I think we know uh, so many strategies to protect our friends and neighbors. And that's going to be a long lasting legacy uh, from this entire pandemic experience. That's Dr. Mia Teramina, infectious disease specialist from the DuPage Medical Group. Dr. Teramina, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.